Father, for again, this word written so long ago and these events of this past history that you would make them relevant to our lives today. And so, Father, as we desire to live lives that are acceptable in your sight, continue to change us and mold us into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings, neighbor. What? Well, this is your first time doing it, so it's understandable. Good evening. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 35. We're going to back up a little bit and do a little bit of review and then move forward. Um, tonight we'll get through chapter 35 and then we have one more chapter left. We'll be chapter 36. See how that goes. Um, and when we finish chapter 36, we will have taught through every book of the Bible. And so it's, it's taken 20 years to do that. So I think we got it down. So now we can move forward in the next 20 years and do it twice. Um, so that, that should occur, Lord willing, next uh, Sunday. Um, the week after that is Father's Day. So we will not have service Father's Day evening. That's on the 16th. And then on the 23rd, um, my son Sean, who's graduated from the Bible College, is going to do a series on Matthew. He's going to be starting that Sunday evenings on the 23rd. So we'll see what God has for us moving forward in the future. But for tonight, now, he has us in chapter 35. Now, last week, previously, or in the previous chapter, King Josiah is seated upon the throne. And he has set his affections on the house of the Lord. This good king, he tore down all of the places of worshiping the false gods of his father, Ammon, his grandfather, Manasseh, and his great-great-grandfather, Ahaz. He followed the godly example of his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, but he also took note how the temple being in a state of disrepair, it also was a reflection of the heart of the people who were falling into despair. And so his mindset is we have to reestablish the place that God has set his affections on for the purpose of worshiping him. He understood the magnitude of what was involved in that and the importance in it as well. And so what we have to draw from that is that a proper worship of God has to be based upon a proper understanding of the word of God. In Psalm 138, verse 2, it says, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. And so again, it's this that God has impressed upon his heart to reestablish the worship of the temple. And as he's doing that, in the midst of doing that, the word of God is found. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But as the word of God is discovered there, it just opens up. It opens up this relationship that God has with his people. The people are reminded of that and they're drawn back into that. So before the temple remodel is completed for the proper worship of the Lord, again, the priests, they find the word of God. It's a book or scroll that was found in a hidden place, possibly to preserve it from Manasseh when he was in his most evil times, or uh, Josiah's father, Ammon, because again, he was an evil king. But the word of God 
it endures forever. And so God is able to keep his word. He's able to keep it back then. God's word endures even into our lives today because the message never changes. It's always about God, God meeting his people and preparing his people for the work that he desires to do through them. And as I pointed out last week, if you think it's strange that the word of God was missing from the temple, well, very unfortunate today, the word of God is missing from many churches as well, or so-called churches that do not teach through the word of God, but speak the ideas of men. So there's a commonality with what was going on back then and a commonality that goes on today. And so as the word of God does not reign in the hearts of people today, and again, some places called churches, then the worship is not as God would have it as either. And so there's got to be that proper balance. And so when the word is read to the king, he's convicted. He's convicted because he understands how the word has been neglected, and he understands the repercussions of that as well. And as I've said once more, pretty much every time we've gone through Second Chronicles, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we are told that the king was to write out the word of God. Now, I don't know if Josiah did that or not, But nonetheless, the king was responsible to know the word of God and to follow through as he would rule God's kingdom. He would rule it according to God's word. It was God's original intent that God would be king and God's people would be governed by the judges. But the people, they wanted a king and they even used the term like all the other nations have a king. And so God gave him a king. And so what we've been seeing since King Saul all the way through to today and Josiah, and we're going to look a little bit ahead at the end of the study today, we'll see this series of those who did what was right in the sight of God and those who did evil in the sight of God. Now keep in mind the nation is divided at this time. The southern nation is Judah and Benjamin and the northern nation is the other ten tribes. Well, the northern nation doesn't exist at this time. They completely gave themselves over to idolatry. Those who were rulers of the northern nation, nothing good or godly was ever said about any of them. They completely had forsaken God and now God has forsaken them. We have King Josiah, not described this way, but similar today. David, a man who is after God's own heart, but there's going to come a succession of kings who are contrary to the Lord as well. And so God has made it clear through this prophet, as the the word of God was discovered, as it was read, and Josiah realized that God's anger is going to be directed towards his people, he came and he approached a prophet, and the prophet made it clear that God's judgment is coming to Judah. But Josiah does what he's able to do for the generation that God has given him to minister to. So there's a future generation that is going to experience. Matter of fact, I don't remember. I think I have it written in my notes. I think it's 22 years after Josiah's death. That generation is going to experience the judgment of God as Babylon comes entering in. But Josiah is of the mind and the same mindset we need to be as for today. We know what end-time theology says. We look at the signs of the time, and we can see, well, we're approaching that day. I don't know how close we are. Could happen, as I said this morning, five minutes from now. It could happen 100 years from now, whatever God's timetable says. But nonetheless, we need to focus upon the generation and the ministry that God has set before us today. And that needs to be where where our focal point is. And so Josiah, as he realizes 
It's a mess. We're far from God. We've had these evil kings. We've had these high places and these places of worshiping these false gods. We have allowed the temple not only to fall into disrepair, but they've even brought those idols into the temple of God. And so he's going through and redoing and all this. And really what we see in all that he's doing is fruits of repentance. Because again, God allows us to make changes. I've said so many times, as long as we're able to draw breath, we're able to repent and we're able to get back right with God, going in God's good direction. And really what we're seeing is a national outward appearance of a changed heart. And where does it all start? It starts with one man in this particular case, one person. Now, he's a person of prominence, he's the king, but still, he has influence and he's exercising his influence to the best of his ability and he's going to make, God is going to make a change to just one person repenting. It's going to go throughout the kingdom and it's going to change the dynamic of a nation. Unfortunately, the secession of kings didn't follow that. But we know in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, when God says to the prophet, he says, Say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So as Josiah has a heart to return to God in a spirit of worship, to return to God according to God's word, and God, God sets his heart towards Josiah and the kingdom. And so Josiah, he's a motivated man, and he gets to work. And the first thing we see, again, as I said, we'll back up a little bit in the previous chapter, we see the covenant is renewed. Look at verse 29, this again in chapter 34. It says, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the works of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So what he's doing is he's making a public proclamation because he's understanding necessity, not just for him to do it, the accountability before really the whole nation and before God, and he's wanting the people to do the same. What is the specific covenant? Specific covenant really is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 19. It says, when the Lord speaks to his people, Keep in mind that Deuteronomy is written just before the people entered into the promised land. God's final instruction, if you will. Verse 15 in Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Verse 17, huge word there, but. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, now keep in mind, when the Bible, if you will, was found, when the Book of the Covenant was found, these words were read to King Josiah. So just what you're hearing now, he's heard and he sees the reality of this. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, and he could be thinking, this is what we are doing, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. 
You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So what Josiah is doing, in fact, is he is choosing life and he is turning to do what God has commanded man to do, again, according to God's word. Now, when we were looking at the minor prophets, we saw a reality. God, God's given his people his word, and he expects people to follow his word, but they were disobedient, just as we can be disobedient to God's word. So what happens when man's disobedient to God's word? God raises his voice. How does he raise his voice? He raises his voice by the sending of a prophet. Prophet we always have in mind as somebody who speaks of the future or end times, but that's not really, it's not the totality of what a prophet is. A prophet is one who speaks forth the word of God. And so there's the word of God. The people have chosen to ignore it. So what does God do? Again, he raises his voice by the sending of a prophet. And when the prophet is ignored, then he raises his voice by the sending of a sword. But during Josiah's time, there was a contemporary. There was the court historian. That man who was, well, I'm sorry, not the court historian, that was Isaiah. But there was a prophet during that time, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has written, we see it in chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. So what is Jeremiah doing? He's taking the word of God and God through the prophet is raising his voice. He's warning them. Verse 4, Which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all I command you, so shall you be my people and I will be your God, that I may establish with the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord. And so a contemporary of King Josiah was Jeremiah the prophet. And we see that Jeremiah the prophet, based upon the word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 30, God raised his voice through the prophet that they would understand that time is truly of the essence. And so this covenant was to be a repenting point many times in the history of Israel. We see it occur in Joshua chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10. God always directs his people back to basis. When we see a born-again believer who has walked away from the Lord, we see somebody who is living in sin, we need to direct them back to doing the first things. Did this person lose his salvation? Can somebody lose his salvation? It's not about that. It's about, you know what? You've walked away from the Lord. You need to come back, and you need to do the first things. And what were the first things? Is the knowledge that you have sinned. We looked at this this morning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. But the knowledge that you have sinned, and you need to come to the understanding that you're a sinner, and then you need to repent of those sins. And then you need to come back into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. What's a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Keeping his commandments, basically. basically. We're going to be looking at that next Sunday in First um, John chapter 2, as far as keeping the commandments. Now, it's not going back to the Old Testament and going through all 613 commandments. Jesus whittled it down to two. We have a lifetime of work keeping just the two, to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might and then to love others as we love ourselves. 
And so when we have somebody who's walked away, that's, that's, that's the remedy for their situation. Come back to God. Come back to God. Repent. Do the first works of repentance and then love God with all of your heart. Get into his word and understand his desires for your life and follow through in obedience. And then have that reflection of your relationship with God be reflected to the people that God has placed in your life. It's then that we know that we're walking rightly and we're walking strongly with God. And so we as a church need to take time from time to time to reconfirm our desire to walk in God's ways. That's why we have communion once a month. I use communion and I encourage the church to use communion as a time of evaluation. Evaluation to remember first love. To remember the day that God met you and and you got right with God and you knew that you were in the will of God. And you remember the intimacy of that. And you remember how God met you and you remember just that that true personal relationship with a holy God and how it washed over you and how it overwhelmed you. And that you remember when, well, when you were first serving God and doing these things and, and just how God moved and interacted in your life, that we would truly take the time to, to sit back and to meditate upon those things, to consider the goodness of God in our lives. Because even doing the work of ministry, we can get caught up in that and we can forget about those things. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And we have to always remember that we have to know a judgment. Maybe a better term would be evaluation, that we would judge ourselves according to the word of God, reevaluate ourselves or ministries or churches. Are we continuing on in a good way? Are we continuing on in God's good path that he has laid before us according to the word of God? Well, in essence, that's what Josiah has done. And the answer is no, no, we're we're not. Something different has to happen. Now, when Josiah is proclaiming this word to the people, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 3, that he stood by a pillar as he was proclaiming these things to the people. Now, outside of the temple, there were two pillars of note. They were made of bronze. They were six feet thick. They were six feet in, in diameter, and they were 27 feet tall. 27 feet would be, I think it's 32 feet to the roof here. So that gives you an idea, six feet wide and all the way up, not just to the lights, but it's twice as big as what you see the lights there. So this, these two pillars, they were strong. And the idea behind a pillar is it was permanent, and it was that which was established and strong. Well, each pillar had a name. Each pillar had a name, and each name had a meaning. One of the pillars was called Boaz, which means strength. The other one was called Jachin, which means established. And they were made by out of bronze, which is a symbol of judgment. And so they were there to always remind people the strength of God and also of how God has established them. God has established them through his mighty hand. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, it says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple. I will make him strong and established. The pillar of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him my name, my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. New name, once again, a fresh awareness of who God is. So standing next to these pillars lent weight to what he was saying. Again, strong and established, that's God's word. 
And Josiah has been touched to the core of who he is. We have wandered away from this, and so he's wanting to people to understand and to know the importance of God's word and keeping God's word. If we do not stand with God, we should not expect God to stand with us. Every prayer spoken by an unbeliever just goes upon deaf ears if they're not right with the Lord Jesus Christ. A nation who prays that God would bless them without a relationship with God and an obedience to God is just, well, they're asking God to do something that God's not willing to do. We must stand with God, and when we stand with God, God's perfectly willing to stand with us. Secondly, we see a complete cleansing What I want to see is how deep Josiah went in his desire to honor God. He determined to not leave undone what those before him have just really made a mess of. Notice that this cleansing is a national cleansing, not just in his sphere of influence, Judah and Benjamin, but all of Israel. He's wanting all Israel to turn back them. Why all Israel? Because they're all God's covenant people. Look at again at verses 32 and 33. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. <clears throat> Excuse me. All his days and they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. Now notice it says Josiah made them do it. Josiah has control and as much as depends upon him, he's setting that standard for holiness. We kind of did that in our home with our children. They didn't really have a, a choice. We never gave them a choice. It was a standard. There was a standard of holiness that we set in our household and it was their responsibility to follow after that. Did they do so in perfect obedience? Yes, we raised perfect children. The people who are laughing know my children. We didn't raise perfect children. They were imperfect children. But you know what? We set the standard, and we didn't veer to the left, and we didn't veer to the right. And they came back to that. Some of them have wandered off, had wandered off. But nonetheless, they know that as far as me and my house, as far as me and my wife, we will worship the Lord. And so that, that is as sure and as strong as those two pillars are. Those were pillars that we established in our home. Now, finally, entering into chapter 35, I'm not going to read through it all, but this is celebration of the Passover. Celebration of the Passover that the Jews were to celebrate every single year on the first day of the first month. But unfortunately, in the Bible, we rarely see where they did. Last time we saw it was King Hezekiah, but now Josiah, as he has heard the law and heard what God's will is, when it's time for the Passover, they're going to celebrate the Passover. Look at the first two verses of chapter 35. Now Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priest in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. This is that which is essential. This is that Josiah's mind, because the word of God tells him that we must do to properly honor God just simply because this is what God has called us to do. So you look at the communion meal 
and looking at it third party, and it's just kind of ridiculous. You guys all, you know, after your church service, you all go up and you grab a little cracker and some grape juice and you turn back and you sit in your seat, you say a prayer and you eat that. What in the world does that mean? Well, they're not going to understand. They won't understand it at all because they don't know God. And they don't know what it means to have a heart for the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. Because communion has just, it just takes on this total new meaning when you're right with Christ. And through the Catholic Church, I took communion just about every Sunday of my life, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. But it's when we took communion after we were saved that it meant everything to me. Understanding the gospel message and the love of God displayed upon the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through this simple meal. And then the consumption of it as I would eat it and I would consume it. The idea is this which I believe has become part of who I am. And that communion meal... at least the meaning of that communion meal, is reestablished in our lives as often as we partake of it, again, at our church once a, once a month. And we just have details in here on, on God, um, I'm sorry, on God's people as they're partaking of that meal. And looking down at verse 16, it says, So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were uh, present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel. Now, they had to have Passovers, but not to the degree and the magnitude of this one. Since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites of Israel and all who were present in the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Why was this Passover such of, of such note? I believe it was because of the passion of the king. And I believe that the people saw the passion of the king and they entered into that as well. That God has been gracious in that going back, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he had every right to destroy us, every right to wipe us off the map, but he's kept us. And he's watched over us. Yeah, there, there's, been, there's been conquering. Remember, they're a vassal state at this point to Assyria. Assyria has, um, has domination over them. But nonetheless, King Josiah realized the goodness of God even in the midst of all of that. And as an illustration in our lives, remember all the days apart from God? All the days when we weren't saved and how God watched over you and kept you for the day of your salvation? how he kept harm from you and he kept you all the way through to that time that your life would be changed and altered and you would have eternity with him and what we need to see and what we need to do. It's kind of that picture of Revelation chapter 5. We're not going to turn there, but John, it seems like there's nobody here who's worthy to open this scroll and then all of a sudden the lamb comes forth that looks as if he has been sacrificed and this lamb is worthy to open the scroll and all of a sudden as he takes possession of it, worship breaks out in heaven and it says, and they sang a new song. Again, this is a fresh awareness of grace because it seemed at one point there that there was nobody worthy to take that scroll, to take possession. But then when it was reconfirmed that it was the Lamb who was able to, there was a fresh expression of the worship of God based upon that moment of despair that has been overcome by the reality of Christ. 
And again, when we enter into communion, it was my encouragement this morning, you know, sing like you're saved, to, to, to truly sing out that last song and the realization of God and the goodness of God. Well, that's what's happening here. These people know at this point they're doing what God has commanded us to do. They know that they're in perfect obedience with God. As we're celebrating the communion meal, we know that we're in perfect obedience with God. As we're baptizing people, we know that we are in perfect obedience with God. As we're teaching verse by verse, as we pray, as we do these things we've been commanded to do, we know that we're doing what God has called us to do, and there should be a mini-celebration that wells up in our hearts every time that we do these things. So Josiah, this good king. Now, there's a concept in the scriptures as we've been looking at these kings, good kings and bad kings. But for now, let's, let's focus on the good kings, Hezekiah and those who have gone, gone, <clears throat> excuse me, gone before him. These are good kings, but not perfect kings. Every good king, there was always a reminder of the imperfections. Looking at King David, Looking at Solomon, again, Hezekiah had his shortcomings. And now we're going to see Josiah, Esau, had his shortcomings as well. Now look at Josiah at the time of his death. And really what we have here is, starting at verse 20 in chapter 35, it's going to be the beginning of the end. It's going to be the beginning of the end before Babylon once again comes in. Babylon is upon the scene right now. They're starting to move and they're starting to flex their muscle. They're starting to make themselves known. More than likely, Josiah is able to do the things that he has been able to do because Assyria can't give the attention to their vassal states that they were able to give before because they have this new threat that has come upon the scene, Babylon. Verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. The reason that Josiah could do all that he did, again, is that the grip of Assyria was starting to loosen. The political climate of the day was in the process of change because the people... Uh, because of what God had planned for the punishment of his people. Keep in mind, these gears are turning, and these gears are going to accumulate in the punishment of God's people. Why didn't he just use Assyria, and why did he use Babylon? Well, again, Assyria, they were... Now, God is able to overcome anybody in what they do, but Assyria, they would come in, and we see this in the northern kingdom, they would take everybody captive, and they would plant them somewhere else. And, and, and those people basically would cease to exist. They would take other people and plant them in their land. And so if Assyria did that, again, God would be able to overcome it. But God used Babylon. Babylon took a bunch of them captive, but Babylon always left a remnant in the land. And then again, God sent uh, Ezra and Nehemiah back and, and they reestablished the land. But God is working change for his purposes. Babylon had conquered Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, in 612 B.C. And Assyria now, they're desperate and they're on the run. Somehow, a former enemy, they probably paid them off, but a former enemy of Assyria, Egypt, was convinced to come to their aid. This Egyptian pharaoh, Necho, he now leads an army. He's going from Egypt along the coast of the Mediterranean up um, up Israel, just think of it if somebody started in Mexico, they came up the California coast, and somewhere around Monterey, they started to head inland instead of Monterey, it's Megiddo. 
And so they're starting to head inland. But Josiah, for whatever reason, I mean, you wouldn't feel very comfortable about this army coming through your land. And so he's of the mindset, it says again in the last part of verse 20, to come out against them. But there's a problem here. Verse 21. But he sent messengers to him, but um, Nico sent messengers to Josiah saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house of which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from your meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Nico from the mouth of God. And that's key, from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah, that would be the prophet Jeremiah, also lamented for Josiah, and to this day all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations, and they make it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. couple of things here. First, as far as King Josiah, if you could talk to him, you'd tell him Egypt was not threatening Judah. They're after Babylon. They're coming to the aid of Assyria here. They're not invading you. More than likely what happened with Josiah, and it's the worst thing that can happen with any leader, his pride probably welled up. What right do they have to come through my country? But the problem is it's not his country, it's God's country. And God was directing Pharaoh to do what he did. God did not tell him, Josiah, to attack this Egyptian column. Secondly, Nico told Josiah that what he was doing was under the direction of God. Again, in verse 22, that it came from the mouth of God. He should have considered. He had prophets at his disposal. He saw them. Jeremiah was there. He could have found out what the desire and what the will of God was. But more than likely, again, pride drove his thoughts. Thirdly, Josiah seemed to be interfering with Judah's future. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 4, it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all of your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with his sword. And so what Josiah is doing is intermingling with the will and the workings of God, and unfortunately it cost him his life. History tells us Josiah died in 608 B.C. Babylon would destroy, would destroy Assyria, and later on they would destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C., a period, as I said earlier, of 22 years from the day of Josiah's death. Now, it was during that time, we'll, we'll look a little bit forward here, but it was during that time that four kings would go on to rule after Josiah, Three of them would be his sons, and one would be his grandson. All would be described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 
testimony of Josiah's sons. Again, we're going to look at this in depth next week. But the testimony of his sons, well, after he died in battle with Egypt, his son Jehoahaz, he took his place. Jehoahaz only lasted about three months before Pharaoh Necho replaced him. Pharaoh Necho is wanting to exercise his ability to have control over Judah, and so he's showing them who's in charge. So he takes this king captive and puts another one in his place. And so Pharaoh makes Jehoahaz's brother, Jehoiakim, king. Jehoiakim will reign 11 years, but again, described as doing evil in the sight of God. It was during his reign that Egypt first, I'm sorry, that Judah first came under attack by Babylon. Babylon came in, overwhelmed them. This would be the time that Daniel and his three friends were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. So Babylon, again, just as Assyria did, you didn't want, if you were these, these, these countries weren't all that big. And they're taking vast areas of land. And you don't want to have to deal with all those vast areas of land. So you would go in, you would defeat, in this particular case, Judah. But you wouldn't destroy Judah. Because you wanted to get whatever resources you could out of Judah. And so you would reestablish them, or at least maybe even leave the king upon the throne, which they did here. And you would put them under tribute, or they would become a vassal state. And they would be required to pay you a sum of money or produce of the land or whatever it would be. And so you would be strengthened because of that. And so Jehoiakim, he, he's, he only lasted three months and eight days. And so Judah again is once again invaded by Babylon and they, defeat, they were defeated. Why? Because Jehoiachin, he, he rebelled against uh, Babylon. He's taken captive by Babylon. And this is when the prophet Ezekiel then is taken to Babylon as well. So part of the resources that they would take would be also the best and the brightest and bring them and they would use those people to strengthen their kingdom and to build their kingdom. And then last of all, his brother Zedekiah then became the last king to rule before the destruction of Jerusalem. It's during his reign that Jerusalem is taken once more. But this time, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, they've had enough of Judah. They're tired of having to mobilize their army. They've got other lands to conquer. And this time they go in. This is a rebellious people. They conquer them. They tear down the walls. They go in and they tear down the temple. And all of this is destroyed. Ezekiel is spoken of during the time when he's been taken captive and God's speaking to him and ministering to the people by the river Chabar, which is about 30 miles north of Babylon. And God's speaking to him to tell the people the things that are going on. So when those people hear that the temple is destroyed, they still understand that this is going according to the will of God. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is the prophet giving that message to the captives who are in Babylon so that they know God is still in control. Seems like things are spiraling out of control here, but God is still in control and his plan is still being worked out. Zedekiah will be the king who, as they are under siege, he sneaks out the back door, if you will, but he's caught on the plains of, um, of Jericho. He's taken captive, brought back to King Nebuchadnezzar, who kills his sons and his noblemen before his eyes, and then he pokes his eyes out with a hot poker, basically blinds him. And so the last thing that this man saw was the destruction that this king has brought upon him. 2 Kings twenty three twenty seven, And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight 
as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. It was temporary, but it was complete, and the destruction was total. And so, once again, I'll just close with this last verse that I read a little bit earlier, but for our consideration in our lives today, 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Based upon these things, these things that were said, these things that were done in the past, we need to make judgments, evaluations of our lives. Are we living our life according to the Word of God? Are we doing the things that God has called us and commanded us? little preview of next Sunday morning, what John is writing to the church in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, excuse me, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us only, but also for the whole world. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we walk according to God's will, according to God's word, we know, as he said here, that we know we know him, that we know that we have this relationship with him. What were the people of Israel doing? They were walking according to the gods of the people of the world. They were walking contrary to God, and God became contrary to them. Father, I pray that we would be a people obedient. Again, that was we've seen these lessons that occurred so long ago, that, Father, we would see the necessity to continue to walk that path that you have set before us. That, God, we would not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, but that we would rejoice every opportunity that we have to walk with you. Father, sometimes we walk weakly, but we have others to help us along. Sometimes we're strong and we're able to encourage others in our strength. But nonetheless, Father, we continue to move down that path because we know at the end there is that prize. And Father, you are that prize. And so, Lord, we so look forward to that day. Father, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would watch over and keep them, that you would protect us as we travel. But Father, I pray that you would bless us and strengthen us through this coming week. God, that you would use us in just great ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?